Hey everybody, get together and learn to love one another right now. Connor J. Nepo here for another episode of Connor Reads, just another libertarian podcast. Today's episode is my 20th, and I'm celebrating by selling a Stag Arms AR upper receiver chambered in 6.8mm SPC-T2 featuring a Hogue free float handguard and Stag Arms phosphated bolt carrier group. Package that new costs in excess of $450, yours now for $375 or comparable trade. Slide into my DMs for details. Sorry for the shameless plug. It is merely capitalism at work. Anywho, today I'll be revisiting an essay I had read in my introductory days to libertarianism many years back. F.A. Hayek's Why I Am Not a Conservative, published in 1960. So, let's get down to it. At all times, sincere friends of freedom have been rare, and in its triumphs have been due to minorities that have prevailed by associating themselves with auxiliaries whose objects often differed from their own, and this association, which is always dangerous, has sometimes been disastrous by giving to opponents just grounds of opposition. Lord Acton 1. At a time when most movements that are thought to be progressive advocate further encroachments on individual liberty, those who cherish freedom are likely to expend their energies in opposition. In this, they find themselves much of the time on the same side as those who habitually resist change. In matters of current politics today, they generally have little choice but to support the conservative parties. But though the position I have tried to define is also often described as conservative, it is very different from that to which this name has been traditionally attached. There is danger in the confused condition which brings the defenders of liberty and the true conservatives together in common opposition to developments which threaten their ideals equally. It is therefore important to distinguish clearly the position taken here from that which has long been known, perhaps more appropriately, as conservatism. Conservatism proper is a legitimate, probably necessary, and certainly widespread attitude of opposition to drastic change. It has, since the French Revolution, for a century and a half, played an important role in European politics. Until the rise of socialism, its opposite was liberalism. There is nothing corresponding to this conflict in the history of the United States, because what in Europe was called liberalism was here the common tradition on which the American policy had been built. Thus, the defender of the American tradition was a liberal in the European sense. This already existing confusion was made worse by the recent attempt to transplant to America the European type of conservatism, which, being alien to the American tradition, has acquired a somewhat odd character. And some time before this, American radicals and socialists began calling themselves liberals. I will nevertheless continue for the moment to describe as liberal the position which I hold which I believe differs as much more from true conservatism as from socialism. Let me say at once, however, that I do so with the increasing misgivings, and I shall later have to consider what would be the appropriate name for the party of liberty. The reason for this is not only that the term liberal in the United States is the cause of constant misunderstandings today, but also that in Europe, the predominant type of rationalistic liberalism has long been one of the pacemakers of socialism. Let me now state that what seems to me the divisive objection to any conservatism which deserves to be called such, it is that by its very nature cannot offer an alternative to the direction in which we are moving. 
may succeed by its resistance to current tendencies and slowing down undesirable developments, but since it does not indicate another direction, it cannot prevent their continuance. It has, for this reason, invariably been the fate of conservatism to be dragged along a path not of its own choosing. The tug of war from conservatives and progressives can only affect the speed, not the direction of contemporary developments. But though there is a need for a break on the vehicle of progress, I personally cannot be content with simply helping to apply the brake. What the liberal must ask, first of all, is not how fast or how far we should move, but where we should move. In fact, he differs much more from the collectivist radical of today than does the conservative. While the last generally holds merely a mild and moderate version of the prejudices of his time, the liberal today must more positively oppose some of the basic conceptions which most conservatives share with the socialists. 2. The picture generally given of the relative position of the three parties does more to obscure than to elucidate their true relations. They are usually represented as different positions on a line, with the socialists on the left, conservatives on the right, and the liberals somewhere in the middle. Nothing could be more misleading. If we want a diagram, it would be more appropriate to arrange them in a triangle, with conservatives occupying one corner, socialists pulling towards the second, and the liberals towards the third. But as the socialists have for a long time been able to pull harder, the conservatives have tended to follow the socialist rather than the liberal direction and have adopted at appropriate intervals of time those ideas made respectable by radical propaganda. It has been regularly the conservatives who have compromised with socialism and stolen its thunder. Advocates of the middle way, with no goal of their own, conservatives have been guided by the belief that the truth must lie somewhere between the extremes, with the result that they have shifted their position every time a more extreme movement appeared on either wing. The position, which can be rightly described as conservative at any time, depends, therefore, on the direction of existing tendencies. Since the development during the last decades has been generally in a socialist direction, it may seem that both conservatives and liberals have been mainly intent on retarding that movement. But the main point about liberalism is that it wants to go elsewhere, not to stand still. Though today, the contrary impression may sometimes be caused by the fact that there was a time when liberalism was more widely accepted and some of its objectives closer to being achieved, it has never been a backward-looking doctrine. There has never been a time when liberal ideals were fully realized and when liberalism did not look forward to further improvements of institutions. Liberalism is not adverse to evolution and change, and where spontaneous change has been smothered by government control, it wants a great deal of change of policy. So far as much of governmental action is concerned, there is in the present world very little reason for the liberal to wish to preserve things as they are. It would seem to the liberal indeed that it, uh, what is most urgently needed in most parts of the world is a thorough sweeping away of the obstacles to free growth. This difference between liberalism and conservatism must not be obscured by the fact that in the United States it is still possible to defend individual liberty by defending long-established institutions. To the liberal, they are valuable not mainly because they are long-established or because they are American, but because they correspond to the ideals which he cherishes. 3. Before I consider the main points on which the liberal attitude is sharply opposed to the conservative one, I ought to stress that there is much that the liberal might with advantage have learned from the work of some conservative thinkers. To their loving and reverential study of the value of grown institutions we owe, at least the outside the field of economics, 
some profound insights which are real contributions to our understanding of a free society. However reactionary in politics such figures as Coleridge, Bonald, De Maistre, Justice Moser, or Donoso Cortez may have been, they did show an understanding of the meaning of spontaneously grown institutions such as language, law, morals, and conventions that anticipated modern scientific approaches and from which the liberals might have profited. But the admiration of the conservatives for free growth generally applies only to the past. They typically lack the courage to welcome the same undesigned changes from which new tools of human endeavors will emerge. This brings me to the first point on which the conservative and the liberal dispositions differ radically. As has often been acknowledged by conservative writers, one of the fundamental traits of the conservative attitude is a fear of change, a timid distrust of the new as such. While the liberal position is based on courage and confidence, on a preparedness to let change run its course, even if we cannot predict where it will lead, there would be much to object to if the conservatives merely disliked to rapid change in institutions and public policy. Here the case for caution and slow process is indeed strong. But the conservatives are inclined to use the powers of government to prevent change or to limit its rate to whatever appeals to the more timid mind. In looking forward, they lack the faith in the spontaneous forces of adjustment which makes the liberal accept changes without apprehension, even though he does not know how the necessary adaptations will be brought about. It is indeed part of the liberal attitude to assume that, especially in the economic field, the self-regulating forces of the market will somehow bring about the required adjustments to new conditions, although no one can foretell how they will do this in a particular instance. There is perhaps no single factor contributing so much to people's frequent reluctance to let the market work as their inability to conceive how some necessary balance between demand and supply, between exports and imports or the like, will be brought about without deliberate control. Conservative feels safe and content only if he is assured that some higher wisdom watches and supervises change, only if he knows that some authority is charged with keeping the change orderly. This fear of trusting uncontrolled social forces is closely related to two other characteristics of conservatism, its fondness for authority and its lack of understanding of economic forces. Since it distrusts both abstract theories and general principles, it neither understands those spontaneous forces on which a policy of freedom relies, nor possesses a basis for formulating principles of policy. Order appears to the conservative as a result of the continuous attentions of authority, which for this purpose must be allowed to do what is required by the particular circumstances and not be tied to rigid rule. A commitment to principles presupposes an understanding of the general forces by which the efforts of society are coordinated, but it is such a theory of society and especially of the economic mechanism that conservatism suspiciously lacks. So unproductive has conservative been in producing a general conception of how a social order is maintained that its modern votaries, in trying to construct a theoretical foundation, invariably find themselves appealing almost exclusively to authors who regard themselves as liberal. Maculay, Tocqueville, Lord Acton, and Lecky certainly considered themselves liberals, and with justice, and even Edmund Burke remained an old Whig to the end and would have shuddered at the thought of being regarded as a Tory. Let me return, however, to the main point, which is the characteristic complacency of the conservative toward the action of established authority and his prime concern that this authority be not weakened rather than that its power be kept within bounds. 
This is difficult to reconcile with the preservation of liberty. In general, it can probably be said that the conservative does not object to coercion or arbitrary power, so long as it is used for what he regards as the right purposes. He believes that if government is in the hands of decent men, it ought not to be too much restricted by rigid rules. Since he is essentially opportunist and lacks principles, his main hope must be that the wise and the good will rule, not merely by example, as we all must wish, but by authority given to them and enforced by them. Like the socialist, he is less concerned with the problem of how the powers of government should be limited than with that or of who wields them. And like the socialist, he regards himself as entitled to force the value he holds on other people. When I say that conservative lacks principles, I do not mean to suggest that he lacks moral conviction. The typical conservative is indeed usually a man of very strong moral convictions. What I mean is that he has no political principles, which enable him to work with people whose moral values differ from his own for political order in which both can obey their convictions. It is a recognition of such principles that permits the coexistence of different set of values that makes it possible to build a peaceful society with a minimum of force. The acceptance of such principles means that we agree to tolerate such that we dislike. There are many values of the conservatism which appeal to me more than those of the socialists. Yet for a liberal, the importance he personally attaches to specific goals is no sufficient justification for forcing others to serve them. I have little doubt that some of my conservative friends will be shocked by what they will regard as concessions to modern views that I have made in part three of this book. But though I may dislike some of the measures, concerned as much as they do and might vote against them, I know of no general principles to which I would appeal to persuade those of a different view than those measures are not permissible to the general kind of society which we both desire. To live and work successfully with others requires more than faithfulness to one's concrete aims. It requires an intellectual commitment to a type of order in which even on issues which to one are fundamental, others are allowed to pursue different ends. It is for this reason that to the liberal neither moral nor religious ideals are proper objects of coercion, while both conservatives and socialists recognize no such limits. I sometimes feel that the most conspicuous attribute of liberalism that distinguishes it as much from conservatism as from socialism is the view that moral beliefs concerning matters of conduct which do not directly interfere with the protected sphere of one's person do not justify coercion. This may also explain why it seems to be so much easier for the repentant socialists to find a new spiritual home in the conservative fold than in the liberal. In the last resort, the conservative position rests on the belief that in any society, there are recognizably superior persons who inherited standards and values and position ought to be protected, who have a greater influence on public affairs than others. The liberal, of course, does not deny that there are some superior people. He is not an egalitarian, but, but he denies that anyone has authority to decide who these superior people are. While the conservative inclines to defend a particular established hierarchy and wishes authority to protect the status of those whom he values, the liberal feels that no respect for established values can justify the resort to privilege or monopoly or any other coercive power of the state in order to shelter such people against the forces of economic change. Though he's fully aware of the important role that cultural and intellectual elites have played in the evolution of civilization, 
He also believes that these elites have to prove themselves by their capacity to maintain their position under the same rules that apply to all others. Closely connected with this is the usual attitude of the conservative to democracy. I have made it clear earlier that I do not regard majority rule as an end, but merely as a means, or perhaps even as a least evil, of those forms of government from which we have to choose. But I believe that the conservatives deceive themselves when they blame the evils of our time on democracy. The chief evil is unlimited government, and nobody is qualified to wield unlimited power. The powers which modern democracy possesses would be me even more intolerable in the hands of some small elite. Admittedly, it was only when power came into the hands of the majority that further limitations of the power of government was thought unnecessary. In this sense, democracy and unlimited government are connected. But it is not democracy, but unlimited government that is objectionable. And I do not see why the people should not learn to limit the scope of majority rule, as well as that of any other form of government. At any rate, the advantages of democracy as a method of peaceful change and of political education seem to be so great compared with those of any other system that I can have no sympathy with the anti-democratic strain of conservatism. It is not who governs, but what government is entitled to do that seems to me the essential problem. That the conservative opposition to too much government control is not a matter of principle, but is concerned with the particular aims of government is clearly shown in the economic sphere. Conservatives usually oppose collectivist and directivist measures in the industrial field, and here the liberals will often find allies in them. But at the same time, conservatives are usually protectionists and have frequently supported socialist measures in agriculture. Indeed, though the restrictions which exist today in industry and commerce are mainly the result of socialist views, the equally important restrictions in agriculture were usually introduced by conservatisms at an even earlier date. And in their efforts to discredit free enterprise, many conservative leaders have vied with the socialists. And that will conclude today's reading. There will be more tomorrow. However, this is a great stopping point for me to rant and rave, or, more accurately, take a big heaping shit on the Republican Party and those milk-toast pragmatists vying for control of the Libertarian Party. Michael Malice has called conservatism progressivism driving the speed limit. He has obviously read the essay we are reading right now, and it is plain to see in the modern political theater. An economically ignorant, lifelong New York City Democrat is in the White House right now, waving the GOP banner. They made a very visible but totally ineffective push to abolish that progressive monstrosity that is Obamacare. But why did their effort fail, even though they held a majority in both, the con in both houses of the Congress? I am inclined to believe it was all a carefully crafted show to exhibit that modern conservatism stands for something with controlled opposition so that the precious racket, socialized health care, moves ever closer to fruition. Their ineptitude in posturing to lube up the collective assholes of this country for whatever greater monstrosity the progressive program has in the pipeline. As Hayek notes, the current Republican Party and modern conservatism's fundamental lack of guiding principles has left them open 
to encroaching progressivism and statism. And the same must be said for the Libertarian Party as it currently exists. We have continually run milquetoast pragmatists who run campaigns on watered-down platforms intentionally designed to appeal to as many people as possible. They have sacrificed the loyalty of the remnant in a vain appeal to the mass of rubes in the voting booths. While they may share libertarian principles by watering down the message they are building their foundations on clay, they fail to ignite the flame of liberty in the hearts and minds of the people. That is why they rarely break 10% at the polls and never grow beyond it. That is why most people don't even know what a libertarian is. That is why we are stuck in our open-range tax farm. My whole goal with this podcast has been to spread the message of radical idealism in pursuit of our remnant so that they may multiply and sow libertarian values in our world and maybe see it set free in our lifetimes. No more pandering, no more milk toast, snooze fest speeches. We need people shouting taxation is theft from the hillside. We need people practicing voluntarism every day and building better communities without the use of force. We need to win hearts and minds. And to do the best way to do that is with a consistent and principled message. As always, be the radical idealist and obstruct government fuckery. Connor J. Nepo, doing the thing.